This episode contains mentions of suicide. Please take care while listening. For people in need, call or text 988. WBUR Podcasts, Boston. Having reported in this world, I've spoken to a lot of people about a lot of very hard things. But for me, this one is the hardest. I'm Idris Thomas, and... Wait, I need to start over. This is Idris. She lives in Dallas, Texas, where I'm from. She's older now, a grandmother. But for me, I've known her since forever. I'm Idris Thomas, and I've known you since you were four years old. She's a family friend. She's the closest friend to my mom. And her son and I grew up together down here in Texas. But, like so many Americans, she too lost someone to a gun. His name was John Stevens. And if you can't tell, it's very difficult to talk about. Can you tell me about my dad? Yeah, I can tell you. Uh, a lot about your dad. He was amazing. He was smart. He was a hard worker. Cared a lot about people. Um, and actually became like a big brother to me. I was close to my dad. He was stoic. Quiet. He served in the Air Force. Like I would. Where I'd learn how to pitch a tent. Drive a stick shift. Wax a car. And I didn't know it when I was younger, but I'd inherit so much more from him. He was that person that would spend countless hours reading books, making phone calls, asking the experts and professionals. He'd work as an air traffic controller in one of the busiest airports in the nation. And then one day, life as we knew it would change. If I was a flight attendant at the time, I went out on a trip. I landed in Little Rock, and I had a bunch of missed calls. But I was tired. I'd been up since 3 a.m. I didn't respond to them. I got to the hotel, took a nap, and I was awakened uh, to more missed calls. Something in my gut told me that something was terribly wrong because they were your Aunt Selena and your mom. And I called the last caller back first, who was your Aunt Selena, and all I could hear was screams. Idris would be called to a police station. On Monday, February 25th, 2008, John Stevens, my dad, took his own life. He was 50 years old. I was just 21. He never showed any signs of depression, addiction, or mental illness. And to this day, I still really don't know why. It's kind of a blur. I just remember seeing your head. 
remember seeing the side of your head. And I could tell by your, your, um, posture that you were broken. And it broke me. When I called the police and they arrived, there were no words of comfort, no condolences offered. In fact, they'd sprawl me alongside a patrol car, frisk me for weapons, and make me sign an affidavit of what I'd seen. To them, I was merely a bystander. Call it shame, call it shock, but up until this moment, this moment right here, where Idris and I are finally talking, no one in my family or immediate friends would ever speak to me about it. And it'd be a scene I'd be left to chew on alone. When I finally did see your face, All I remember was just the look of shock and disbelief, just utter shock and disbelief. I know that you were the one that found your dad. And uh, I just could not imagine what you were going through. Why didn't anyone talk to me? (laughs) This is such a difficult question for, for me to answer. Um... I just, I just knew that was too much, that there was no way that anyone could be okay. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry a lot. I just, I don't know. It just felt so horrific, so big. I still really don't know why he did what he did. But I know it hurt me. And everyone around him. Forever. And I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Couldn't believe it. Only because he loved you guys so much. I didn't understand. Why he gave up? I would return to the home I grew up in to find a puncture in the drywall and a hole cut in the carpet where he last stood. I am many things, but on that day I would enter a new demographic. The millions of Americans carrying the memories of those lost 
at the end of a gun. <laughs> My name is Alon Stevens. This is The Gun Machine. Chapter 8. The Leftovers. One of the things I fear most in this gun conversation, the thing that most Americans really don't get, is the permanence of death. What it means to have your carpet cut out, to turn off a cell phone number, to let the credit card companies know he's deceased. As a journalist, you begin to view death differently. You see how it reverberates through households, communities, and through lifetimes. And it bears a stark question. What happens to those left? And while the dead find a sense of finality, it is those around and survived that carry the continued and invisible cost. Let's start with those most hidden in plain sight. This morning, nine people have been shot in Denver. Three of the victims in critical condition. Four people were shot near Georgia State's campus. One person in critical condition. The ones the bullet touched but didn't take. At least six people were hurt, one in critical condition, after a gunman opened fire outside a nightclub. The wounded. As many as 15 people, including three children, are recovering from injuries after two drive-by shooters opened fire on Halloween night in Chicago. Police say at least one person fired from a car into a crowd. Every year, 120,000 Americans will have their bodies pierced and perforated. Bones exploded and organs eviscerated by the barrage of firepower available on the American market. And while they leave with their lives, they still do not return whole. They're released into one of the most brutal and expensive healthcare systems in the developed world. An international study by the Commonwealth Fund found the United States ranks last in access, equity, and healthcare outcomes among 11 high-income nations in the world. And on top of that, we lead in violent assaults. It's a problem researchers here in America are unraveling too. While most of the coverage was devoted to deaths, what seemed to be somewhat forgotten some of the time is that there is somewhere around two to three times as many people in America who are shot each year, but don't die. This is Dr. Zuri Song. He's a primary care doctor at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and a health economist at Harvard Medical School, where he and his colleagues started digging into the lingering after effects of getting shot. What they found was, when you do the math on violence, it starts to add up quick. Let's start with the basics, right out the gate. Research finds that if you're wounded and survive in that first year, 
your medical spending will increase roughly 400%. Immediately after a firearm injury, the number of hospitalizations, doctor's visits, images, lab tests, home health services, all of these healthcare services increased fairly sharply. You now enter a world of x-rays and wheelchair ramps, reconstructive surgery and physical therapy. And the violence doesn't just break the body, it breaks the mind. When people manage to survive those injuries, the impact of a non-fatal firearm injury appeared to be a 40% increase in pain disorders, a 51% increase in psychiatric disorders, and an 85% increase in substance use disorders over the first year after the non-fatal firearm injury. Even those closest to the injured suddenly become collateral damage. Song's research found that family members of firearm injury survivors experienced a 12% increase in mental health disorders themselves, PTSD, depression, anxiety. For those who don't know, it's nightmares. It's nausea. It's a flood of tears at breakfast. Moms, uh, specifically, have a 75% increase in mental health visits. And when we look at parents whose children die from gun violence, the toll on the human mind is unbearable. We see a two to five-fold increase, not a 30% increase, but a two to five-fold increase in psychiatric disorders among family members of children who died from their firearm injuries. When researchers calculated the economics of America shot and survived, the lost wages and cyclical doctor visits, care and trauma that ripples to families and caretakers, pain suddenly has a price tag. And it's immense. In the U.S., the total economic toll of firearm injuries is about $557 billion per year. That is roughly 2.5% of our nation's gross domestic product, or GDP. $557 billion a year. Researchers at Everytown for Gun Safety, which is a funder of The Trace, got that number by calculating medical costs, criminal justice services, and the loss of worker productivity. The missed hours of labor, the empty desk chair or forklift. All of that adds up. Song and his colleagues then drilled down into that number even further, looking into the expenses billed to health insurance, capturing the medical costs of the people left behind. When we look at adults and children mixed together, survivors who are both adults and children, on average, they sustain a roughly fourfold increase in healthcare spending throughout that first year after the injury. And so many of these folks were fairly healthy before their firearm injury. They did not have many doctor's visits. They did not have many, or if at, at all, hospitalizations. But immediately after a firearm injury, the number of hospitalizations, doctor's visits, images, uh, lab tests, home health services, all of these healthcare services increased fairly sharply right after the firearm injury. And Song reminds us that their study only captured the insured, noting that for many who experience gun injuries, they are unable to tap into any resources at all. And now America has turned into a nation in many ways, carrying along its wounded. I think the data are pretty clear in telling us that we are all increasingly sharing the burden of firearm injuries together as a society. Song says his work is led by the somewhat simple yet brutal reality of gun violence. 
that while there is a clear moral cause to care for your fellow man, it is often economics that move people to action. Last year, 550 large-scale business owners wrote a letter demanding that Senate do something about gun violence. The CEOs and leaders of companies such as Bain Capital and Yahoo cited, among other things, that U.S. employers lose $1.4 million in productivity every day due to the cost of gun violence. And perhaps it's a cost the halls of power can no longer ignore. From Lewiston, Maine, the scene of a horrific mass shooting here, at least 18 dead and at least 13 injured, several of them critically. These are the scenes from Lewiston, Maine, where a gunman took a Ruger SFAR 308 semi-automatic rifle and ruined lives, a community, and a collective memory for the foreseeable future. Megan Hutchinson and her 10-year-old daughter Zoe were inside Zoe's leg, grazed by a bullet. I never thought I'd grow up and get a bullet in my leg. And it's just like, like, why? Like, why do people do this? And it's visions like these that have pushed our country to the brink. This fall, citing gun violence as a national epidemic, the Biden administration launches a new idea. After every mass shooting, we hear a simple message, the same message all over the country. The first ever White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Do something. Please do something. Do something to prevent the tragedies that leave behind survivors who will always carry the physical and emotional scars. Families will never quite be the same. Communities overwhelmed by grief and trauma. Do something. Do something. And after the deadliest mass shooting of the year, we asked the White House, what can you do? That after the break. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. 
When we started reporting this podcast, the White House Office of Gun Violence Prevention didn't even exist. In September, after lobbying from advocacy groups, President Biden established the office, and it's supposed to coordinate the federal response to mass shootings or sudden upticks in gun violence. So think FEMA, but for guns. It's also supposed to advance the president's policy agenda. I have to admit, after years on this beat, I'm skeptical because we've seen so little action from the federal government when it comes to preventing gun violence at all. Congress passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act last year that aims to improve background checks, establish federal penalties for straw purchasers like we heard about in Gary, Indiana, and expands mental health services. It's the first major gun law in about 30 years. And in March, President Biden issued an executive order to reduce gun violence by cracking down on gun sellers who don't perform background checks and releasing more information on federally licensed firearms dealers who violate the law. But there were some fresher ideas too, like improving federal support for survivors of gun violence, the wounded and the people left behind. So when I sat down with the director of this new office, Stephanie Feldman, that's one of the things that I wanted to know about. How can they actually help people who've been harmed with a gun? What can the Biden administration do to get some sort of aid packages or something to these people? Yeah, people who survive gun violence, those are lifelong burdens that they will carry. Uh, and we can't solve them, but we can help them and support them. In their early days after a shooting, for example, like the one in Maine, we can make sure that they are having access to mental health providers. The federal government can also help them navigate all sorts of different financial challenges that families face after losing a loved one. A mass shooting affects every part of a community, uh, and the federal government needs to be doing more in order to be supporting these communities, just like we would after a hurricane or a natural disaster. Let's talk about Congress and, and federal support. Do you think this will be enough? I mean, when we look at the system that's in place right now, we we just dug out some numbers right here as part of this podcast. We found for 2013 to 2022, the federal government awarded over $16.6 billion to guns and ammunition companies. And it's quite shocking because these gun companies, you know, go back to lobby into organizations that are opposing exactly the stuff that you guys are trying to put on the table right now. Do you think you can win in that system? So the federal government is a major purchaser of firearms for international defense work and domestic law enforcement. One thing that the president did earlier this year, he's he signed an executive order asking the Department of Defense in partnership with the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice to come up with principles for promoting gun safety through our purchasing power. So recognizing that as a reality that we do need to purchase firearms as a government, but that gives us power to help shape the what the companies whom we're purchasing from are doing. So that's one step in order to advance the work going forward. The gun industry definitely, especially in this country, particularly is very vocal about its opposition to any and all of these measures. If you would have to call on the gun industry in any sort of way to be responsive to gun violence, what would you call on them to, to do? 
So first, federally licensed firearms dealers, who are most of the people who are selling firearms to consumers every day. We have a clear mandate and a clear list of best practices and protocols that federal firearms licensees need to be uh, undertaking in order to be responsible. And that's part of the work of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives is to make sure that federal firearms licensees are conducting that work. Now, gun manufacturers is a little trickier, but still, the federal government regulates and inspects much of the work of gun manufacturers. And that is, again, part of the work of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. But there are some fundamental barriers, one being that there is not currently a ban on assault weapons in high-capacity magazines. And until Congress enacts a new ban on assault weapons in high-capacity magazines, we are limited in our ability to prevent companies from doing so. But that is something that the president is not going to hesitate to continue to call out and to call for Congress to act. Rifles of all types account for about, you know, 10%, right, of all recovered gun crimes. What is it about the assault rifle that still is kind of a number one thing for the Biden administration? And do you think it's worth expending, right, what little currency you have on this kind of hill that, you know, most Americans are still dying from handguns? Yeah, so I don't think that uh, we have to make a choice regarding going after handguns or assault weapons. And these are this is one strategy for reducing gun violence. And it is one of a range of policies that we're pushing for. We don't have to accept that it's a false choice between tackling mass shootings or tackling community violence, tackling assault weapons, or tackling pistols getting into the wrong hands. We can do all of the above. One of the hardest issues about uh, reporting on this beat, right, is that we don't know how bad this situation is. And part of that is because 90% of the gun companies are private. They don't talk to us. They don't have SEC filings because of PLACA. They don't get sued. So that's the other window. And then when it comes to the realm of government, I have to deal with law enforcement, who's extra secret. And on top of that is the ATF, which is so secret that we have done audits on there, how they honor FOIAs. They honor less FOIAs than the FBI, the DEA, the CIA. It's incredible how secret they are and how they just ignore basic public information law. On top of that, we know this is important because this is something that the NRA went after in the TR Amendment, which ripped trace information away from cities, communities, and reporters. So now we cannot go out and figure out which gun dealers have disproportionate uh, weapons and crimes. We can't see any of that stuff. I can't see if the ATF is doing their basic jobs, dude. So is there anything that y'all can do about the ATF and transparency? Because we're dying in the dark out here. Yeah. Uh, so the president uh, has repeatedly called for repeal of the TR amendments, which is what you were talking about, uh, to make sure that communities have access to trace information uh, and some of this law enforcement information that they need to make decisions. Uh, and we continue to, to press on this in a number of angles. I hear you uh, and uh, share uh, the belief that communities deserve to have the information to make informed choices in terms of law enforcement resources, public health resources, uh, and policies all across the country. So this story is personal to me. I, I lost my dad to suicide, right? And so that's why I became a reporter. Is there anything in this for you 
that fuels fuels this work. It is unfortunate how many people come to this work um, because of personal stories. One person who lost his son once told me, um, I don't get to quit this work, right? He's He said, I go home every day and gun violence is still all of my life because my son was taken by gun violence and I will be living this forever. And I think about that multiple times a week when things are frustrating and tough. Um, so that's how this is personal to me. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thank you for sharing a story about your dad. On that, Stephanie Feldman is right. Every day there are hundreds of Americans who lose someone to gun violence, who will be living with this forever. The hurt is beginning to melt. For every person torn away from this plane, a multitude of people are left behind, trying to figure out exactly what to do. This is Angela Schellenberg. It was on the five o'clock news, and all we saw was, you know, two men have been shot and killed in a in an area home, and the names of the victims have not been identified yet. When she was 16 and her brother was 13, they'd find out through the nightly news that their father was killed. Schellenberg says he was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was execution style, shot once and tried to get away, and his shooter made him lay down and shot him again. She is now a grief counselor. And if her tone sounds off, even cold, it's because she's told this story countless times. But even more so, she says that it's just part of the harsh reality of grieving, that those closest to violence speak of it almost clinically, often at the shock of those who haven't seen it firsthand themselves, a critique even I've experienced. But when you lose someone you love violently, it fucks with you. It really does. And Angela says it's those questions of pain, of death, that victims wrestle with the most. It's a um, such a traumatic loss that the brain cannot make sense out of the unmake sensible, if you will. And so what it does is it's constantly ruminating, trying to understand what happened to our loved one. She specializes in working with gun violence survivors, from those who've lost people to homicides and suicides to mass shootings. She's written survivor's guides and hosted retreats for those grieving. She says that in the political debates, people who've watched their loved ones die at the end of the gun are not part of the conversation at all. Their grieving is written off as dramatic. They're spoken about and not spoken to. And more pragmatically, devoid of any sort of mental health care, leaving the hurt to hurt more. There is no fund that says, hey, we're going to help the gun violence survivors. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've just done pro bono work because there were survivors that just couldn't afford it. And I think it is such a crime, you know, that we have such a gun problem in America, but we are not willing to back this up with help. And guns in particular seem to exact a special type of grief. In mourning, the mind needs closure. And often the violence and the unknown cannot be expressed openly. In a world of political discord and vitriol, it's hard to heal when no one will let you talk.
they need to be able to talk about the details. Like they need to be able to say, this is what happened. And, um, you know, when my loved one was shot, I worry about, did it hurt? Um, what were their thoughts? Uh, you know, where did the bullet enter? Where did it exit? Did they feel it? I mean, there's so many questions that they have that um, to a normal person would almost be just like so taboo to talk about. But when you're in a group with other survivors who have experienced these same thoughts, they feel sort of normalized in being able to say the things that nobody really wants to hear because it's too traumatic. I know that sounds so morbid and so awful, but it, it is post-traumatic stress syndrome. It's like you want to know um, how they died. And you want to imagine what their thoughts were and if they were hurting. And there's just so many questions it leaves. It's at this moment I have to turn off the camera because Angela is right. There's not a day I don't wake up thinking about finding my father in that room. Seeing the blood-soaked carpets of my childhood home and touching his chilled wrist. That's my memory. And when people ask, why now? Why didn't you say something? I tell them I did. I mentioned it to friends and family and colleagues and editors. And I'd watch the room go cold. Because the biggest taboo will never be politics. It'll always be death. Is this how you normally drive here? I've never been here since. So yeah, I don't know. No one has. No one has? No. At the end of our reporting for this project, gun machine producer Grace Tatter and I visit my father's gravesite at the National Cemetery in Dallas. I haven't been here since we buried him. And it takes a while for us to find his headstone, even though the cemetery is on a grid and I have the number. It's gotta be somewhere around here. It's a military cemetery, and all the headstones look the same. A field of light stone rectangles perfectly spaced out. Different names and dates, but all in identical font. But the longer the search goes on, the quieter I get. Almost scared to see my own last name on one of these tablets. And then, finally, after walking around in circles, we're in front of it. It's funny, we did stand here before, and I neither just saw it. As a journalist, I'm supposed to give you the most accurate description of how I feel, to give you some sense of meaning but I can't find it. Out of the millions of words a writer is supposed to come up with, I can't really say much at all. 
You know, you're just so fucking mad. You know. You're just fucking mad. I'm just mad. Every journalist has an origin story. This one was mine. And that's the thing with the trajectory of loss. It's so damn unpredictable. In a world of certain violence, it is the leftover that is the most uncertain. The X in the equation. It can turn a gang leader into a peacemaker, a child victim into a provider of child sanctuary, the grieving into a grief counselor. Because pain changes you. In some ways, it softens you. In other ways, it hardens you. And my final shape? Pointed. It can have you trade gun for pin and turn the last name on a tombstone into a byline, a citation in White House policy, in congressional bills, in international lawsuits. And that's the only thing I could do to try and make it make sense for me. But if you asked, I do not believe most Americans really understand what gun violence is. Not yet. I offer no solutions in my reporting. I firmly stay in the problem department. And I don't believe the killings will stop soon. This podcast is just the basics. When this tape wraps, I'll go back to the beat, back to covering the ATF and crime, Back to a laundry list of investigations my organization hardly has the manpower to carry. So I will leave you with this. I can't tell you how this will end. But I can tell you how it will begin. With a warning. As the American demographic of those carrying the dead deepens and grows, so does the demand. For answers. Names, dates, the players and profiteers of violence. And that's what we will look for. We will know what's killing us. Because if we're gonna die, we're not gonna die in the dark. For people in need, you can call or text the Suicide Prevention Line 988. You can also find more resources around suicide prevention at thetrace.org slash suicide prevention.
Gun Machine is a production of WBUR in partnership with The Trace. I'm your host, Alon Stevens. If you want more on this or any of our other episodes, you should visit thetrace.org slash gunmachine or wbur.org slash gunmachine. If you feel like we are telling an important story, review the show on your podcast app and fill out the Gun Machine survey at wbur.org slash survey. You can sign up for The Trace's newsletter to find out more on this reporting at thetrace.org. Our producer who always has my six is WBUR's Grace Tatter. Our editing fellow from The Trace is Aja Anning. Our fact checker is Megan Cattell. Orchestrating our beat drops is sound designer Emily Jankowski. Our production manager is Paul Vikas. Our editors are Kevin Sullivan and WBUR podcast executive producer Ben Brock Johnson. Additional editing from Miles Corman. Our WBUR managing producer is Sama Joshi, And our engagement editor at The Trace is Gracie McKenzie. Audio engineering from Tim Felton, and our artwork is by Diego Maicho. Special thanks to WBUR executive editor of news, Dan Mozzi, The Trace's executive editor, Craig Hunter, WBUR chief content officer, Victor Hernandez, associate director of institutional giving, Nicole Leonard, director of marketing, Kristen Holgerson, and Jessica Coughlin of Onward and Upward Media. Tally Woodward, Editor-in-Chief at The Trace, and Margaret Lowe, CEO of WBUR. Support for The Gun Machine comes from the Joyce Foundation, a nonpartisan philanthropy that invests in racial equity and economic mobility in the Great Lakes region. For more than 25 years, Joyce has supported research, education, and policy solutions to reduce gun violence and make communities safer. To learn more, go to joycefdn.org. Additional funding provided by the Candida Fund. 